it's really important for African stories and expertise to be part of any global conversations on public space. So when external actors who are interested in Africa reach out to the continent, they should find that there are networks of experts who are in place through whom they can engage on the continent. And not to think that nothing is happening there and bringing you know, ideas and interventions that may already be happening on the continent. Welcome to Urban Limitrophe, a Toronto-based podcast exploring the global African experience by highlighting the various initiatives happening in cities across the African continent and occasionally the diaspora to creatively solve problems, support communities, create vibrant urban spaces, and build better cities overall. I'm your host, Alexandra, and join me as I explore this episode's topic, play. This episode is sponsored by the University of Toronto School of Cities. The School of Cities convenes urban-focused researchers, educators, students, practitioners, and the general public to explore and address complex urban challenges with the aim of making cities and urban regions more sustainable, prosperous, inclusive, and just. To learn more about their work, visit www.schoolofcities.utoronto.ca. A while back, I came across a video titled, Why Safe Playgrounds Aren't Great for Kids. It explored briefly the history and design components of playgrounds and how in America, playgrounds were not always as manicured as you see them today, as there is reason to believe that if you actually throw in a bit of controlled risk into the mix through what are called junk or adventure playgrounds, it's better for the child's overall development. Seeing these images of kids in junk playgrounds, playing with hammers, bricks, and plywood reminded me how powerful a child's imagination can be, and also made me wonder what today's urban playscape really looks like. So this episode isn't about debating whether or not children should be allowed to play with hammers, but it is about exploring whether kids are able to play, period. And how can our cities be better designed with children and youth in mind to create opportunities for play to occur more easily, frequently, and safely. Article 31 of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, or the UNCRC, states in subsection 1, states parties recognize the right of the child to rest and leisure, to engage in play and recreational activities appropriate to the age of the child, and to participate freely in cultural life and the arts. The second subsection says that states parties shall respect and promote the right of the child to participate fully in cultural and artistic life and shall encourage the provision of appropriate and equal opportunities for cultural, artistic, recreational, and leisure activity. Although the UNCRC was adopted in 1989, and 196 countries, except the United States, have ratified it, we all still have a long way to go in ensuring that all children have access to play. When it comes to cities, unfortunately, children and youth are sometimes an afterthought in urban processes and design. This is revealed through the design of the built environment, 
for example, through the lack of playgrounds and public spaces, but also vehicle-oriented speed limits and street layouts that lack pedestrian crossings and make traveling to and through these spaces unsafe and ultimately inaccessible. Designing cities with children and youth in mind is so important that in 2018, UNICEF released a handbook on child responsive urban planning that provides guidelines and the benefits of making the urban landscape more child friendly that A, mirror the benefits of play overall, and B, further emphasize that when you design for the health and safety of children and youth in mind, you design for the health and safety of the broader community as well. According to UNICEF's guide, child responsive spaces should focus on five pillars. The first is health. The same way that child responsive areas are great for supporting children's physical, socio-emotional, and cognitive growth, play improves health by promoting healthy child brain development and physical activity. The second emphasis is on safety. The design of the built environment can make certain spaces such as parks, streets, and play spaces more difficult to access and appreciate. So shifting the design of spaces to be more inclusive and welcoming helps to encourage not only play within our cities, but a wider range of activities and behaviors that help to increase well-being. The third focus is on citizenship. Child responsive areas are important to boosting the vitality and vibrancy of neighborhoods overall. By encouraging opportunities for social capital, aka the social interactions and relationships that act as the glue that keeps communities together, to develop by providing a space of community interactions and activities which support community resilience. Similarly, play teaches kids critical skills such as creative thinking, self-control, problem solving, and social skills that they'll need to be civically engaged. The fourth area of emphasis is on the environment. Access to green space is essential to our well-being, and it is a key factor of children's physical, social, and mental development, as a lack of children's exposure to it contributes to behavioral and social issues. So increasing child-responsive spaces helps to encourage connection to the outdoors and helps to support lifelong sustainable behaviors. The last focus area is on prosperity. Investing in early childhood play is an investment in society where for every dollar you put in, you get $8 in return. Play also helps to increase academic performance from earlier grades all the way through to higher education. One organization that's working to ensure that our cities are more child-friendly through its various initiatives is based out of Accra, Ghana, and is called the Mafra Foundation. One part of what makes the Mafra Foundation so interesting is its long history of children's advocacy sparked by Efua T. Sutherland, the founder of the organization and famous cultural advocate, playwright, and author, who, according to the Mafra Foundation's website, presided over Ghana's ratification of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, making it the first country in the world to do so, and who from 1981 to 1991 was the chairperson of the UN's National Commission on Children. So I am very grateful for the opportunity to chat with Amaui Phillips to learn more about the book by F.O.S. Sutherland titled Playtime in Africa that kickstarted their project of the same name in their Mafra Place Park to discover how they incorporated play in unconventional spaces of the city, such as the bustling African marketplace through their Playable Markets initiative, and to learn overall what playful cities look like to her. Let's tune in.
what is the Mafra Foundation, and what is the work that you do? Well, we usually have to explain to people outside Ghana that Mafra is a word that means children. And that's in the Akan language, which is widely spoken and understood in Ghana and in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, our work is, I would say it's in the cultural enrichment of children's lives in Ghana beyond formal school. So what we do is we interpret cultural enrichment really broadly to include diverse experiences, exposure, and it's for children of all backgrounds. So the effort is to reach children who would not normally have that range of enriched exposure. And just by having children mix up together from different socioeconomic backgrounds in the same spaces itself, very educational for all of them. Uh, the founder of our organization was my mother, Dr. Ifwa T. Sutherland, who is recognized in Ghana and internationally as a writer, a pioneering developer of cultural institutions, an educator, and an advocate for children, as well as a Pan-Africanist. Yeah, it's inspiring to see, you know, all the good that has come from the different um, uh, different uh, kind of hats that she was wearing <laughs> over the years and the legacy that, you know, she's left behind through those different initiatives, but also that's been carried forth through the organization and, of course, yourself. Yes, uh, it's, it's a legacy that is large and those are really big shoes to try and fill you know it takes more than one lifetime sometimes to uh to live out you know the 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 legacy of a person like that but so i feel very privileged to be in a position to not just have close knowledge of this person but to also be one of the people who understood what her vision was and you know have tried in some way to carry it forward so a project of uh, of the Mafra foundation that really initially caught my eye was your organization's work in making park space more enjoyable for children's play and and learning through your playtime in africa initiative so can you explain a bit about what this program is i can i was very much involved in that initiative uh, about, um, oh, let's see, it's almost nine years ago now. But the Playtime in Africa initiative takes its name from, I would say, an early 1960s photo essay called Playtime in Africa. And that was by Ifwa Sutherland and the photographer called Willis Bell. The book has photographs of children engaged in many forms of play in different settings in Ghana. And it's accompanied by some really wonderful prose poetry. So I'm just astonished all the time uh, about this book because its overall message was that free play matters, both in the personal development of children and in national development. And if you think about it, this was extraordinary forward thinking uh, originating from a newly independent African country over 60 years ago. So you can just imagine when we consider how 
central principles of play in childhood development have become today. The fact that there was somebody from a newly independent African country who was making that case uh, long before even some you know, of the Western countries were, were doing so is quite remarkable. So fast forward to 2012, Mofra Foundation borrowed this name as well as the inspiration for this project, which we thought we would initiate basically to reset a focus on children in urban public space, uh, beginning in Accra, which is Ghana's capital. And we started this with a public conversation on whether our cities are being designed with children in mind. Um, we had a very honest self-reflection on the factors that work against building on some of the very promising children's park models. We had those children's parks in the 1980s in Ghana, uh, again, led by Ifwa Sutherland, who was chairing Ghana's National Commission on Children at the time. But 20 years later, these park models had failed. So it was really a question of looking at what it was that was um, preventing us from building on our institutional capital in that way. But for me, the most exciting event of uh, that uh, period was this three-day design charrette we had, and we brainstormed the idea of a child-centered green space. We had architects, we had engineers, educators, we had cultural indigenous knowledge experts, we had historians, we involved children, teenagers, and everybody was pooling their thoughts over this three-day period. Um, and that was when Mother Foundation took up stewardship of this privately owned uh, one and a half acre space in Accra, where we were allowed to experiment with some of the ideas coming out of this playtime in Africa, charrette and conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's interesting how um how like a, a book was able to inspire this change. You know, when they say like art <laughs> imitates life and, and vice versa, that's really something that happened. <laughs> Where, um, yeah, we went from depicting um, play to advocating into creating a space for this to actually be nurtured. I think it's really important and really interesting story. It's a pity that that book is out of date at the moment, out of, I would say out of print rather. And uh, we can, tempted to try and see if we can um, do a reprint, but I think the more exciting idea would be to update it, as it were, because there's some elements of it that are a little dated, you know, the example, there are um, certain kinds of play that are attributed to girls and others that are attributed to boys, and in today's world, you wouldn't do that, obviously. Um, but I would love to see an updated version of that play, that kind of play, um, photo book across Africa, not just limited to Ghana. Yeah, I think that would be very interesting, especially uh, I recall recently I was um, watching kind of like uh, a news uh, like expose and they were just talking about this particular game called um, 
Actually, it's called many different things across Africa, but called Mankala. Do you know it? I do know it. I do know it really well. And in fact, uh, just remind me uh, later on in the conversation to tell you a story about how we've incorporated that Africa-wide, you know, uh, Mankala um, cultural artifact mm -hmm. <laughs> into the, the park that uh, we developed. Cool. I think they were just kind of going about the history about it and how, yeah, across Africa, how it's called many different things, but there's this cultural significance and that's something that, you know, has gone beyond the continent and it's played all around the world, but the history of that particular game isn't necessarily attributed to Africa and um, the, the communities that may have started it. So I thought that was interesting. And then, yeah, it's a great to hear that uh, something that you're also integrating into the park. But there was also something that you had mentioned was why the production of these like park spaces or play spaces had failed. Can you elaborate more about, yeah, what kind of these failures were and the, the challenges that you'd have to overcome in trying to implement such a play space? Sure. There's a whole history behind Ghana's modern development of public space for children. And I said this happened in the 1980s under Ghana's National Commission for Children. It was a concept called the Park and Library Complex Idea. And there were model parks, not just in the capital city, Accra, but in one of the secondary cities. It, there was one at regional level, at village level, uh, in, at a neighborhood community level. So these were models that worked very well. There's a lot of energy and resource that was applied to them over a period of perhaps 10 to 12 years. But with changes in government, with changes in the leadership of that particular government agency, um, I suppose with you know, scarce resources that had to be allocated elsewhere, all the parks were allowed to deteriorate completely. And it was just a really sad lack of uh, continuity of you know, a, a public institution like that. I think that if we had carried it on, we would definitely be in the leadership on the African continent in terms of child-friendly space. But unfortunately, the issue of maintenance and the um, continuation of, of thriving programming in children's parks uh, has been a really serious challenge in Ghana's cities. I should have mentioned that when we had the playtime in Africa Charette, we uh, developed a, a master plan. But of course, you know, finding funding to carry forward the master plan in full uh, never happened. So in practice, the park, which is Mofra Place Park, has developed really organically over the past eight or nine years. And I find its evolution to be an amazing journey that I've been very fortunate to have been a part of. Yeah, can you explain a bit more about what kind of programming are now offered in the park? Yes, it's, it's been a space that has been very 
unique, at least in Ghana, and I think even beyond Ghana, in terms of the way that it was conceptualized. So we saw it as a, a flexible um, space, a place which would not just be a playground, but would be an outdoor classroom, um, would serve as a green laboratory, um, would be a place for children to come for field trips, would be able to accommodate things like science museums and you know, all sorts of making and tinkering and innovation, hands-on work with children. It's also been a place where we've been able to demonstrate uh, resilience, which I find uh, to be really important. That is to say that the park is in microcosm uh, the city of Accra, in that Accra's primary issues are in water management, you know, stormwater management, having clean water, it's in sanitation, it's in the provision of power. And so what we wanted to do in Moffa Place was to have children come to a space where they could see the problems of their city being resolved, okay, with sustainable solutions that they could not just use, but could also learn about in a very hands-on sort of way. And that's been an element of the park that has worked really well. I usually will use the example of a very practical element of any park, which is um, toilet facility, for example. And we needed one at the park. It was one of the earliest features that we had to put in, obviously. But what we then did was we went to a local engineering firm uh, who were putting in um, uh, biosustainable toilets. And so they put that system in. And then, you know, instead of just making it, you know, a sort of square building with a roof, we decided to look at the Northern Ghana architecture. And so we made, you know, a ferro-cement, a very organic ferro-cement structure around the toilet. And it turned out to be a very actually, you know, aesthetic beautiful building and then we had a woman from mural making culture in northern Ghana uh, come and put her art on the external um, part of the building so it meant that we had a feature that was utilitarian and functional but it was also very teachable you know you could teach children principles of, you know, science, um, biology, but it also had aesthetic value. That is to say, they could look at that building and connect it to cultural aesthetics of the country itself. So it's just these different layers of conceptual education that we give children just 
in the way in which we think through the kinds of features that are put in the park. Yeah, I think that's very unique indeed, because each playground does offer um, learning opportunities in terms of how to be with like within community and um, yeah, just how to collaborate, how to do these different things. And of course, like, you know, like motor skills in terms of learning how to, you know, support your body weight when you're doing the monkey bars and all these different things. But I think that what you're saying about bringing, literally turning the playground into, like you said, like a, a green lab, a learning lab where people can see how problems are being solved in, in the real world and how they, these solutions can really apply to them and can be sometimes even better than what is like typically seen. Like you mentioned the bio, the biosustainable toilets and even, you know, providing a space where people can, can gain access to their culture in a way that they may not always have access to is, is really interesting and really, it's really cool that you're able to, to pull this together. Yes, we really enjoyed doing that. I mean, we made sure that most of the features that are in the park are uh, made from natural materials like wood. You know, there's a lot of tree logging that goes on in Accra, unfortunately. So we lose these um, hardwoods, you know, mahogany, teak, neem trees that are just uh, cut down to make way for different kinds of uh, urban uh, development. And so we've very often gone around the city and just, you know, begged a few people, <laughs> logs <laughs> from different places, brought them to the park, and then turned those into benches, or you were talking about Mancala earlier. So we built these giant Mancala sets with salvaged wood essentially and that's another example of using you know an, uh, a, an, an African cultural concept and you know making sure that we can interpret it through some feature in the park so the Mancala sets have worked very very well and I consider that they're successful because People were walking to the park, people of different generations or children, you know, were playing as peers and they'll go straight to these installations and start playing. You don't have to explain anything to them. Um, it, it makes for really wonderful intergenerational exchange because, you know, older people are teaching very young children how to play Mancala. And we've also been able to use it as um, uh, a tool for teaching numeracy and, you know, for um, help, helping very young people to experience different kinds of texture. So we've been able to use these Mancala sets to teach basic concepts of Braille just by dropping the pedal into different hits. And so it's proven to be a very versatile way of updating what you can do with a Mancala installation, as well as teaching the different forms of Mancala as they occur around the African continent. There's so many different ways in which it's played, different numbers of pits and pebbles, etc. And so that's the kind of, you know, African cultural inspiration 
that goes into our concept of a park within an African city. Yeah, the, this, the story about the Mankala and the way it's being used, and especially what you mentioned, that intergenerational connection or opportunities really makes me think of, I feel like in all the movies when they show New York, there's always at least like one scene when you see like these like old men <laughs> who are around a, like a chess set in like one of the parks <laughs> and playing and right. you have, yeah, and you have like children walking by and yeah, so that's what it reminds me of, that kind of opportunity, which is, I always think it's really special that um, sometimes even strangers can just meet up in this public space and, and, and learn from one another and, and, yeah, and get to interact with one another. It's so true, Alexandra. And I do want to say that, you know, the giant chess set is not off our radar. We haven't had one, but it's the kind of thing that, that we would definitely do um, and try and make, you know, a, a part of uh, a space that is usable for some other thing as well but all of which is just to establish that we want children to be grounded in their own cultures and environments. But we feel that that grounding is precisely what gives you the confidence to be able to reach out and use and exchange you know, other people's ideas and cultures. Yeah, I agree that that's very important. I think it's uh, particularly someone from like diaspora, the diaspora that didn't grow up in an African um, African city or like surrounded by a community, African community uh, or yeah, in, in that sense, there is a certain, there's always kind of like, I always kind of grew up watching other people who are really like rooted in their community and that kind of like kind of sense of strength that it gives them that um, that's something that I'm still trying to work through and, and still trying to find opportunities to learn through one part through this podcast, but others in terms of like reading and other research. So I agree that I think instilling that a sense of uh, pride in your own culture from a young age is really important and can only create more, um, yeah, more confident and more, uh, more, more youth who are, who can be leaders and who are civically minded moving forward. Well, the important thing is that this same necessity of instilling confidence is not just an issue for somebody who grew up in the diaspora. It's definitely an issue for children growing up in Africa, partly because we still have the legacy of a colonial education system you know, and a mindset that says things from other places are better than your own, you know, or that uh, to some degree um, reject or allow their uh, indigenous cultures, you know, to lapse. And so that's one of the jobs we do is one of not just recovery, you know, but just um, reinforcement of, of, of culture. And I have to say that some of the scenes in the park that I've enjoyed the most are when we've had groups of students from the diaspora, like uh, American um, college students, come to the park to visit and the ways in which they will interact with the children from our neighborhood where it's this kind of play off, you know, of an African culture. So there are these hand clapping games, for instance, that there is a US version of, and then our children would say, oh, but this is the way we do it here. And, you know, 
it was just an amazing kind of riffing back and forth, you know, between different cultures in the African diaspora. And to have things like that happen in a space like Mofra Park intentionally, you know, is one of the things that distinguishes the park. Um, I'm always also very excited to see artists who just come to the park to help out. You know, you might have a painter or, you know, a group of sometimes quite prominent artists who just come to hang out there, you know. So it's a very, uh, every day there is a surprise and it's a culturally rich space. And it never has quite the same footprint because we're always making and remaking things. And because we're using natural materials, sometimes, you know, our um, features and installations don't necessarily last forever. You know, so you'll come to the park one year, like five years ago, what you would have seen there is not necessarily what's there today because we're constantly doing things over. But we involved children from the very beginning when we were clearing trees and, you know, trying to um, make the gardens and so on. The neighborhood children have always been involved in whatever construction is taking place in the park, you know, to the extent that they, they can do so at their appropriate age level and, you know, with safety in mind, of course. Uh, but um, I can point to children who would otherwise never have had the opportunity for this quality of engagement, not just in green space, but with, with cultural programming. Uh, but who, after having three, four, five, or six years of this exposure, you can see that their minds just open. They'll, they will never be the same, you know, as they would otherwise have been if they hadn't had that exposure. Yeah, I mean, I actually work for a, a public arts organization called Steps Public Art, but yeah, a lot of the work that we do is in part <laughs> the temporary installations that you're talking about, but also like permanent ones, you're saying about like murals and other public space activations, but cultural programming is also a big part of what we do. Even from afar, I'm not always involved with all those kind of uh, cultural programs, but just seeing the impact that it has and then that sense of ownership that it, in the sense of confidence that it gives to the youth who are involved is really astounding. But even from my own perspective as a youth that does, that did grow up taking part in different cultural groups and having a younger sister who like even now during COVID has really benefited from the camaraderie that comes from these cultural programs, but also the skills and the, the being able to create something and put it out into the world is really important, really helps to bring um, some people out of their shells. It is. I have always thought of this park as an outdoor children's museum. A children's museum concept being what you would think of in Canada or the United States as you know, a children's museum, which has a lot of rich programming and opportunities for hands-on engagement and innovative kinds of uh, learning, etc. This, this park does that through its various programming. We've had at least two major outdoor climate education exhibits, for example, where you know hundreds of school children have walked through 
to see different kinds of installations, etc., which stay up for perhaps you know two weeks or three weeks. Um, so that's one kind of, of, of learning that has worked very well. We've had a global design-a-thon happen at the park space at least uh, on two occasions. So it's things like that that we really welcome. And I'm particularly proud of our capacity to invite groups that are supporting families who are living with disability because children with disabilities in Ghana really, <laughs> really don't get, you know, anywhere near the kind of attention that they ought to. And typically their carers are their mothers, you know. So we've been able to reach out to those communities and actually have them come to Mokra Park for, you know, just fully subsidized days in the park where you can see not just the children, but their siblings who are often their caregivers and their mothers, you know, just put their bread and down for five to six hours and hang out and rest and, you know, do their dance exercise, you know, <laughs> with a trainer. I love to see that, you know, we've made a couple of chair swings so that children and even adults you know with disabilities can can use them and that kind of universal design thinking is particularly interesting to us because we don't want to have the disability access uh, feature somewhere off on the side where it's like those children go there but to make it a central feature that is so cool that actually everybody wants to use it. That's a really interesting point, that perspective on, yeah, accessibility. Yeah, play already is being something that I feel like in cities is always kind of put apart because, you know, like children places are like put in playgrounds and they're kind of left there. And yeah, sometimes you have parks and there's like places for people to play, but not necessarily dedicated to this kind of play. But then, yeah, also... Yeah, how do you make these play spaces accessible to people with different abilities? So that's really, yeah, I think that's really interesting what you're saying about making sure that it's integrated together. So it's not just kind of off to the side on their own and there is that separation between all the, all the youth, but that opportunity to bring people together. And then that also offers even more learning, you know, to see how different people live. And I think also to erase some of like the stigma or some like stereotyping that people might make. So that's really, that's really, it's also really interesting. This park is like full of surprises. <laughs> It is, it is. I do want to mention one other thing that we've done that I'm particularly proud of, which is that we have, it, it's an innovation space. So we have had, you know, design teams come there and do research around the community um, about, you know, play and, you know, parents' attitudes to play and what are the opportunities or the challenges and, you know, are there any kind of gender issues relating to who gets to play in which space or not. Um, and so uh, we've, we've been able to design kind of a indigenous, completely local origin play feature, which we call agro. Agro means play, but it also 
is a word that relates to theater or performance. So this structure was built, and again, it's one of those things that was a prototype, so it didn't last long, but we've got all the blueprints for it. And it was just a wonderful, it was just an amazing structure. You know, it was flexible. You could make it into a hutch. You could open it out into a stage. It had a blackboard for writing and it had a place for little djembe drums. And it had a piece where you could use, you know, local gourds. It was just amazing. And so that's the kind of thing that we've been able to produce in that park that I absolutely love. Yeah, it's really interesting, the idea of making the place like modular or making play modular, and which actually brings me to another project that you've been working on that kind of ties in with this, speaking about like mothers and different genders and like different and, and the modularity of play and whether or not there's like specific places for play is the uh, Playable Markets Initiative, which is another prototype that you guys did. And I really, really love this project because I hadn't really considered the idea of like having an African marketplace as like, is in fact being like just a workplace. And as it's a, a workplace that's typically run by women and they're not always women with the like, with the highest incomes. That being said, like, where are their children? Because I already know here in Canada, childcare is always something that's kind of, it's one of those services and one of those things that's like super important, but there's a lack of it and, it, and it's poorly structured. And because of that, you know, that really controls the mobility of women you know, during the time when their kids are too small to be in school, but, uh, or, or to be left alone. So that's really interesting. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that initiative as well. The Playable Markets Initiative came out of a post that I wrote for the Open Ideal platform several years ago. And I was thinking just like you are, and anybody who's been in West Africa knows very well that the market in West Africa is a female-dominated commercial space. And so when I was thinking about, well, if you came to a city like Accra and you wanted to know where the children were when they're not in school or not at home, uh, one place where you were going to find lots of children is in the market because that's where their mothers and carers are for the full working day. And so if they're not in school, uh, very young children are going to be in that space. And so I uh, thought about the critical importance of the first three to five years of a child's life in its cognitive development. And I was also thinking about how to partner a park like Mofra Place, which is a green space, and there aren't very many of those in the city, so it's not really a model that you can fully replicate elsewhere. However, we were developing things in the park that could be shared, you know, with different kinds of public space. And so many of the uh, products from the market that we had repurposed for use in the park, you know, included utensils and, um, uh, various other kinds of, you know, organic objects, etc. I love going to the market just to see what we can find there and reuse. So we already had a relationship with one or two markets in Accra. So the idea was, okay, um, how can we um, use this 
existing <laughs> relationship and take it a step further by making parts of the market playable. So we weren't talking about, oh, let's do a little, you know, uh, childcare center in the market. It wasn't about that at all. It was about very intimate spaces within a carer or a mother's line of sight because children in the market tend to congregate in these small groups and stalls anyway. So it was to go where the children are already congregating and see if there weren't very simple things that we could do in the market that would just give children another opportunity for cognitive enrichment. You know, the child is already learning in the marketplace. You can't help but learn because it's a very aggressive environment. Um, and so, you know, a three-year-old child has to learn how to get out of the way of, you know, heavy loads coming <laughs> um, through the passageway and so on. So they do learn a lot. They have to be resilient, you know, etc. But it's just that extra little thing, you know, that you could do so that in those five, six, eight, nine hours that these children are in this environment, perhaps they can you know, improve their pre-reading skills, for example. Um, so that was the, the basic idea. Yeah, I agree. I, I actually, I went only to the, <laughs> I admit, I only went to the market once. I, I went to Lumbumbashi, which is where my family's from in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I went a few years back and we went to the market <laughs> once and it was, it was definitely, as an adult, I was like super overwhelmed. So then when I saw your project and I was just thinking about a kid having to navigate these spaces. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really why it resonated for me because I think it's a really untapped opportunity to really, yeah, to, to leverage these spaces and make them something that's enjoyable for not just the parents involved, but also their youth. And then also it made me think about like Ikea, you know, when you go, um, they like they have a specific kids section before you enter the store where you can like drop off Hi. the children. Yeah, while your parents shop. And I like remember all the fun things as a kid. It was like my favorite part of going to the Ikea other than like eating the hot dogs and the ice cream and everything was, you know, playing and coloring and like watching movies with all the other children, even if it was only for a short while. Um, so yeah, that's really important and really interesting. And so I guess my next question about this was, I know this was like a prototype, this was like a model that you had started, but uh, yeah, has this project been able to reach other markets in the city? Not yet. We only had the opportunity to prototype this in two major markets, but it's definitely replicable because the whole market culture and infrastructure is so similar across the country that if it is even partly successful in one or two spaces, then the potential for it to work in many, many other markets is very high. So I would love for us to be able to have the resources to take what we've learned and replicate it elsewhere. We did learn some very important lessons in our pilots, what to do and what not to do, because, you know, I don't want romanticize this. It was an extremely challenging project. You don't just enter into a marketplace because there is 
a whole you know management system um and culture and hierarchy within the market and you have to know the right way to approach the space otherwise you're never going to get anywhere you know so the market leaders who are the women um, you, you you reach out to them and you must explain what you want to do and then you have to get the other you know market women to buy in etc um if you know i had to do this over again i would definitely uh remind myself constantly that this is a commercial space and so you have to recognize that women are engaged in the serious business of making a living to support their families there. So for example, we thought that we would ask for space to be made in the market, you know, oh, can you give us a couple of stalls? Well, hello, you know, rent them like everybody else does. And it, it you know, it took us a while to recognize that that would have been a much more practical and actually affordable approach for us just to say, you know, in every section of the market, we'll rent a stall or a couple of stalls, and then, you know, we'll pay the fee and we'll use that store, you know, and design it in the way that we like. So it's things like that. If you buy elements, from the market, you know, the materials I was saying that we buy earlier, you already have a certain amount of goodwill with them because, you know, they're doing business and um, it's worth their while to have you in the space, you know. So it's, it, it was really interesting. We, we tried to make it an integrated project in that we would not only try and put these interventions in but we would have early childhood um, experts come in to the market mm -hmm. and talk to the women about how important it is for children to be able to have you know certain kinds of stimulation in their earliest years and uh, one of the most disturbing things that I learned was to see that toddlers would be kept on their mother's backs, you know, for practically the whole day, just because of the mother's considerations of the child's safety. And so you have a child at a precise period in its life when, you know, it, the mobility is so important, is being restricted and limited in this way. Yeah, and, and you mentioned they were like in the market for like eight to nine hours a day. So like every day for like <laughs> that many years, like I'd say like three, four or five years. Yeah, it's a, it's a lost opportunity. It is, it is. You also have to think very carefully about what design interventions will work because in these market spaces, as I've said, they're very aggressive and they will reabsorb child-friendly interventions very quickly unless the market people themselves are stewarding it. So you have to um, anticipate that, you know, there's going to be a high possibility of vandalism, for example. 
you know, things will be removed. So we had very wonderful ideas about using, reusing um, uh, car tires and we painted them and we put little doors on them and we put them on the wall and we bought books, you know, to put in them. I mean, they didn't last even, you know, two weeks. Um, those things are, are going to disappear. So you have to think of what you can do that won't walk. And that includes a lot of very thoughtful use of paint, you know, <laughs> on, 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 on surfaces, um, as well as putting things at, at ceiling level and making sure that there are women in the market who will partner with you and are undertake to be the caretakers of certain kinds of loose parts, et cetera. You know, so you really do have to create a whole system for this to work well. Definitely. Yeah, I can, I can see how that's, un that's definitely understandable. And I think that for any really successful project, something that you pointed out is that sense of ownership <laughs> that comes from the community that helps to ensure its longevity or else yeah, things disappear and things get forgotten <laughs> and things fall apart. So that's great that you're able to get that uh, yeah, community buy-in and that understanding uh, in order for this yeah, project to succeed. Yeah, so then talking about the market and the fact that it is something that's replicable and yeah, and the challenges that you came across in trying to implement it. I wonder, you know, what kind of services do you think that, um, whether these be uh, partnerships or policies or like programs that like cities could implement to really help you like replicate this, this type of project? I think that if the municipal authorities in cities are made aware of the advantages of these kinds of design interventions and that they're actually not that difficult to implement. And if you can get them to understand that, then that gives you an entree into those spaces and then there's quite a lot that you can do. So I think uh, the, the local government um, is an important stakeholder in this. Otherwise you spend far too much time waiting in their offices and you know, trying to meet people. And uh, unfortunately, quite often the local government representatives are men, you know, who think of play as something that's, you know, beneath their notice almost. Yeah, so the importance of that for children's development is, is it's not that easy to get that uh, message across. So you have to have ways of doing that. And I think for us, you know, just certain kinds of simple um, uh, messaging um, strategies might work for this, you know, a, a flyer or some some sort of very basic, you know, mess messaging format that you can distribute widely, you know, and hope that that makes an impact. And then just having several more models because it's important for people to actually see something in operation that's successful. 
-hmm. if you can take them to a space and say, look at this, you know, I think that that tends to be a lot more effective than trying to talk them around. Mm -hmm. So uh, it just would be wonderful to have some resources to to be able to do (laughs) what we did again in a few more more places, perhaps in, in some market spaces that are a little less challenging than the ones that we actually went into in the sense that there are some markets in Accra that have a little more infrastructure. You know, there's a, there are buildings and there are spaces within those buildings and it's not just a, a very kind of informal outdoor environment. That could work as well, you know. So yes, it's the persuading people about what actually goes into the development of children and why it needs to happen at that precise period of their lives, I think would go some way towards, you know, helping us to implement these things. So you need forward thinking mayors and (laughs) uh, local, you know, municipality executives who are willing to uh, allow this kind of creative work to take place. Oh, definitely. It really takes kind of all hands on all hands on deck <laughs> to get a project off the ground, especially yeah, something as as beneficial as this, but something that um, that is often overlooked for those who aren't directly affected by it. Sometimes, even though technically they are. I mean, everyone was a kid at, at one point in their lives, and there's that experience. But I guess as we grow older, we forget <laughs> and we how important these various experiences are and how we can continue to create spaces for them to occur. Yes, I mean, one of the arguments that could be powerful is to get people to understand that actually African cities are very young in the, that they have very young populations. I mean, the median age is something like 19, you know, mm-hmm. in many African countries. And so the children of the world in the next 10, 15, 20 years are going to be on the African continent. They're there already, you know? And yet you find that we're not really doing urban planning with children and youth in mind at all. If you think about a place like uh, Accra in Ghana and then, you know, some of our other secondary cities, you know, so this is the demographic that lives in the city. <laughs> so there, there, there have to be ways in which the, the, the way that the city functions and is designed reflects that demographic. So on that note, what would a child-friendly or a youth-friendly city look like to you? I think if you talk about playability, to me, it's not limited to formal playgrounds and parks. You know, we find that uh, if you observe children, they'll find a way to play in any circumstance and in, in quite challenging environments. So, for example, in some parts of the world, there's concern about play being too safe and investigating ways to introduce more risk. <laughs> when I'm in those meetings, I, you know, arguing that, I mean, for urban African children, most play already has risk built into it. Um, you only have to see a, a toddler precariously balanced on the edge of an open drain 
you know, next to their mother or Karen who's trading on, on the side of a street, you know, the absence of sidewalks, you know, no safe road crossings, um, to say nothing of air quality issues and, you know, how those impact these vulnerable young respiratory systems. So we already, we, we already have plenty of <laughs> risk. Um, and so my argument is that interventions in the city have to balance, you know, that 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 kind of uh, opportunity <laughs> to learn resilience, uh, you know, with just some slightly safer um, interventions. So instead of imagining it, you know, I always fall back on the making of playable spaces in African cities, um, which is being interpreted in very creative ways by organizations like Imagination Africa in Dakar, Senegal, uh, the Play Africa Children's Museum in Johannesburg, South Africa, uh, the Play Hub in Kigali, Rwanda. These are all colleagues of mine who are doing some amazing thinking about children in the public space. So for example, Imagination Africa employs technology like the GoPro camera, right? To document young children's experience of their city. So they put a GoPro on, on a three-year-old and have them navigate the city in order to support evidence-based you know, innovations and work that they'll do. So I mean, that kind of observation and collection of evidence is certainly an activity that we need to do a whole lot more of. Uh, Play Africa in Johannesburg, for example, um, is developing a mobile museum concept. So it reaches children in their own communities with a very flexible kind of footprint. It, it'll, it'll go to where children are. Um, the Play Hub in Kigali, Rwanda um, is advising the um, government on its car free zones. They're developing these areas. And so it's like how to make those zones more child friendly. Um, so for me, this work that's being done across the continent and that many of us are now beginning to link up on in a network is a real example of what the potential is for the African continent. Yeah, there's tons of uh, potential. And yeah, in, in my research, I've seen a few of the, the, the organizations that you've mentioned. And yeah, there's a lot of creativity coming out and it's, it's great to hear that you're all kind of connected together or that you, you know of each other. So that can only, I mean, community can only breed more creativity and more, um, more growth. So I'm excited to see, yeah, the African cities and, and this particular focus on play and how that, and how that continues to evolve and the opportunities that are there. Well, all of us that I have mentioned agree that it's really important for African stories and expertise to be part of any global conversations on public space. So when external actors who are interested in Africa reach out to the continent, they should find that there are networks of experts who are in place through whom they can engage on the continent. And not to think that nothing is happening there and bringing, you know, ideas and interventions that may already be 
happening on the continent. So we, we, we're not just supporting each other. You know, we feel like we are really building a very, very robust um, system of, of experience and expertise. We want to establish an African play network and we think that it's going to consolidate these decades of experience and expertise in the African kind of space and play environment. Yeah, I think, I think that's a very important point about connecting with the people already doing the work to avoid the like imposition of other people's kind of views or ideas of how things work, you know, on these places. I think the continent has already had enough of that in terms of like colonialism. So I think that an African play network that people can turn to when they're trying to implement this is, is great and, and exciting. I think so. We recently had a webinar on uh, play, play spaces in urban Africa. And the point there that was made by our moderator, Oreo Kolo, um, who is, you know, one of these uh, uh, African tech gurus, um, she, you know, she, she commented on exactly this, you know, that you've had ideas, you know, um, implemented in various parts of Africa, for example, um, the notion that you can generate electricity by, you know, uh, riding, you know, bikes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, doing some sort of, you know, mechanical um, exercise or, you know, what was called play. And it was like, look, you know, people should be able to. <laughs> to access their mobile phones or, you know, electricity. I mean, you know, it's a lot of work. It may be different mm. from having to walk them out to fetch water, but <laughs> not that much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so that yeah. kind of notion, you know, that you're only entitled, you know, to benefit from information technology if you, you, you put in all this physical work, you know, <laughs> unlike everybody yeah. else in the world. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not fair. <laughs> it doesn't make much sense. That seems, that's, that seems to have gone. <laughs> it's not so, so much the, the, the in thing anymore, so. <laughs> yeah thankfully i mean like if i had to ride a bike to like charge literally all my devices i would right. you'd never be able to stop you wouldn't get For much hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is thought to be a good thing anyway <laughs> but it's a start <laughs> they're trying but yeah i'm glad that we've moved away from that <laughs> we're moving away from that towards things that make more sense and that are more practical um because i think that's Yes, we want. We don't want to trade in one one problem, one issue for another <laughs> at the end. And so, looking towards the future about uh, the Bonfire Foundation and all the different things you're doing, what are you looking to do next? Well, one of the things we do have to do is to get the story of what we've already done out much more effectively. So, this podcast is one of those ways. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we've done a tremendous, 
Yeah, we've done such a lot of work over the last two decades, and it needs to be disseminated and used across Ghana and even in other countries, you know, too slow. Just being able to, to share our work and tell our stories and, you know, let people know what they can use or, you know, lessons that they can they, they, they can learn from what we've done is, is really important. So having uh, media spaces to share those stories is something that we actively look for. Um, I think joining our colleagues across Africa and establishing this Africa Play Network is, is also a, a big near-term goal for us. We've been engaging with each other over a number of years now we just feel like we need to you know establish that organization and um, stand it up and you know give it some strength and visibility so Mofra foundation is definitely going to be involved in doing uh, some of that and then i would say that uh, we're preparing our organization for the next generation to keep our work going so I would personally actually love to reach out to a cohort of young people who themselves experienced Mopra Foundation programs as children. And several of them are in really interesting, you know, professions and walks of life right now. So I would love to bring them together and get them to be a kind of a, an additional think tank and you know ambassadors for the work that we do and you know give us new ideas about you know what to do um, in the next generation so we hope that we'll always have a physical space like this park which is on loan to us the, the spaces and it's not a sure thing that we will always have it so we have to make the most of, of, of it right now. And I am um, already talking to people in secondary cities in Ghana who want to create similar spaces and who actually have a lot less pressure um, for you know, competing uses of the built environment just because their populations aren't you know, as, as, as high as in the capital city, Accra. And also, you know, there's just a little bit more flexibility in terms of the management of spaces in some of these areas. So all that they're lacking is the idea <laughs> and just a little bit of encouragement, you know, to implement some of these things. So I'm very... Um, eager to see us as move out into the uh, less less dense urban spaces and try and encourage interventions and designing for children there before they become you know <laughs> spaces that there's a lot of pressure on this is sort of getting get on the ground floor there if possible yeah, yeah. It looks like you definitely have your hands full, and I think what you're saying about creating 
like sharing the stories and the insights that you've learned are very valuable, especially that um, the, that you have this particular expertise on play on this particular continent. And there are some like challenges that we've discussed and other, other advantages that are, that are unique to this, this context that um, I'm sure if people had a better understanding, if there's more information about it, they can work towards supporting these goals of improving like the playability and the child friendliness <laughs> of cities overall. So yeah, I look forward to, to seeing all the, all the, the information that you have to, to put out. Yes, thank you. There's a real need for a focus on urban conditions in African cities because we do share some characteristics. So there's a predominantly informal sector, um, there's limited formal infrastructure, there's often limited disposable income, there's competitive pressure for land use. So if you combine that with youthful demographics, you know, there's, there's a lot that we have in common in Africa that makes it you know, well worth uh, collaborating on. Definitely. And so my last question is, how can people get involved with the organization overall? I know you have all these de different initiatives that you've mentioned that are going on in the future, but how can people yeah, get involved in, in amplifying the work that you're doing? Well, one way would be to be responsive to our social media pages. So if people will share our posts in your networks, particularly Twitter and Instagram is, you know, where... Um, some of our more, more current uh, photographs of what we do and um, uh, recent projects live. And mm -hmm. so just, just getting a little bit more activity around uh, that would be great. There's always, of course, for those who want to make donations, you know, our website allows uh, people to donate and usually those donations go to our U.S. fiscal sponsor. So for tax purposes, um, that's probably the way to, uh, for people to go. But, you know, th there are all sorts of non-traditional ways, I would say, in which parks and, and park activity can be supported. For example, we've had very good success with academic programs. So, you know, there are two or three institutions that have had design studios at um, both undergraduate and graduate level who have used Mothra Place Park as um, the focus of, you know, some, some kind of curriculum. And that's always wonderful because all of the research work that is done uh, then you know becomes available to us to use and and there is some benefit for the program as well for example north carolina state university came five six years ago to our park and their summer design program was to you know look at the park and do some design interventions and they came back to the US and I think that they, they won um, recognition from the American Association of Landscape Architects for the work that they did there. So it, it can be a really beneficial uh, collaboration. Um, 
and as can uh, businesses that are in things like, you know, construction or uh, engineering, you know, uh, things like that reach out to people who can help in kind um, just with expertise on, you know, certain things like water management, stormwater management, you know, power solutions, um, things like that. You know? So we're always on the lookout for people who are doing sort of international um, development work and especially who are supporting their employees you know, to do volunteering. Thankfully, the topic of play in cities has been gaining more and more traction, and there have been a number of new partnerships such as the Real Play Coalition, reports, and guidelines such as the Urban Play Framework, which are all spearheaded by a series of organizations and groups in the realms of urban planning, placemaking, arts, culture, design, and more, who are working to make our cities more playful. As Amawi mentioned, there's a growing network of play experts across the continent working to improve the urban playscape, such as Imagination Africa in Senegal, Play Action International, formerly known as East African Playgrounds, which is now based out of the UK with a sister organization in Uganda, and Play Africa in South Africa, who, fun fact, is actually responsible for Southern Africa's first interactive children's museum. Like the Mafra Foundation, each of these groups are putting their own unique spin on who and what urban spaces are for, and are unlocking the potential of play to transform both traditional and unconventional spaces into opportunities where learning, fun, culture, and community can be celebrated amongst children, youth, and their loved ones in the very heart of our cities. Thanks for listening to this episode. To learn more about the great work that the Mafra Foundation does, please visit www mafragana.org. For this episode's show notes and other resources, make sure to visit www.urbanlimitrof.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on Instagram to stay up to date and stay tuned for new episodes coming your way every month. Until next time.